0: specific to parents raising twins, triplets, and more. Learn more, subscribe to the show, or connect with Paul at TamaCapital.com.
1: This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Tama may retain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast.
2: Did you know that financial planning is more emotional than it is financial? That your cognitive biases help to shape your lifestyle and financial decisions? Today, I talked to Daniel Crosby, a psychologist and behavioral finance expert who wrote the book on investor and financial psychology that dovetails into our individual biases. In this conversation, I talked to Daniel, who's a New York Times bestselling author, The Behavioral Investor, where Daniel lays out the four consistent types of behavioral risk, ego, emotion, attention, and conservatism, which underpin our psychological makeup. We also discussed the impact that COVID has had on our cognitive ability to make decisions. Daniel talks about how his life transitioned from being a clinical psychologist who wanted to help people with eating disorders to being the chief behavioral officer for a financial company, a path that was heavily influenced by his father, who was also a financial advisor. Please enjoy my conversation with Daniel Crosby. I think the the best place for us to start is your background and your story, because when I first met you a few years ago at a FPA FPA conference in Michigan, um, I wasn't aware of your background. So I think if you could walk our audience through that, how you were, tra- you, well, you still are a trained uh, uh, psychologist, but walk us through like your your story story and background on how um, you went from. Doing that to what you're doing today in the in the behavioral economic space.
1: Yeah, thanks for thanks for having me. So you're right. I um, I am a clinical psychologist by education. So my my PhD is in is in clinical psychology. And so one of the things about behavioral finance is there's well in, until recently there has been no real clean path to a career in in behavioral finance. So either you were, you know, an economist or or a financier who learned psychology or you were a psychologist who who learned the the business side of things, the money side of things. And so, you know, I I pursued a degree in psychology because I wanted to help, um, you know, women with eating disorders, right? You know, I got in, I got into this business because I had a friend with an eating disorder and in the process of, of trying to help her recover, Um, I got really immersed in clinical psychology and exploring treatment options and things like that. And I just, I I fell in love with it. So I got my undergrad in in psychology. I started my PhD in in psychology three days after I got my undergrad. So I was like, you know, 23 years old at the time, I started my PhD. And, um, you know, about three years into a five-year program, I just I just had kind of fallen out of love with clinical work. Um, It was, I was taking it home with me, like it was stressful. It was important work. It was meaningful work, but it was just kind of eating me up. Um, And so I spoke with my father, who is, you know, my sort of de facto career coach and uh, obviously a great friend. And my dad is a financial advisor. And I was like, dad, I I love psychology. I love thinking about why people do the things that they do, but I don't necessarily love doing it in in sort of a clinical setting. Uh, So, you know, where else could I look? And he goes, well, son, you know, there's a ton of psychology in my work. And I was like, what are you talking about? You know, I mean, at the time, you know, at the time I was like, you're a numbers guy. Like, you know, you help people invest their money. What do you mean there's a ton of psychology in your work? But that was sort of the moment when I discovered whatever, you know, the seed of behavioral finance, and we could take it from there. But that was sort of the moment where I pivoted from from clinical work and started looking to to apply this uh, to to the work of financial advisors.
2: I think that's been one of the biggest change that changes that I've seen over the last few years with our field is it's it's getting a bit more mainstream that. Financial advisors, wealth advisors, whatever, plant financial planners. There's so many different freaking names for us. That's part (laughs) of the confusion out there. But that it's more psychological, more emotional than it is financial. Um, Yeah, it's it's not. It's easier to put together a wealth management plan for somebody, but the hard part is having them stick to it. And that's some of the things that we're going to get into. Which is where your line of work focuses on are all these um, biases and these emotional behaviors that that drive um financial decision making because that's the one thing I tell people all the time, and I primarily work with families is that you can't necessarily separate your financial life from your emotional life they they are you know directly tied together, and that's why I've been so excited about having you on on the show to talk about you know, some of these, um, behavioral biases and, you know, what helps us make these financial decisions and what harms us when trying to make some of these financial decisions. So I think from, from that perspective, your work centers around, like I mentioned, a lot of these, um, biases that affect, um, or that go into making financial decisions. And I think that's the place that I would like to start and have you kind of talk about what these biases are and if people are are aware of them or if they're not aware of them and how that plays into making financial decisions.
1: Yeah. So the easiest way to think about a bias is that it's sort of a decisional shortcut. So one of the things that we know about the human brain is it's, it's overtaxed. It's, you know, two to three percent of, of our body weight, but it accounts for like 20 to 25 percent of our metabolic spin in, in a given day. And so our brain is always kind of working harder than our body wants it to. And so one of the ways that we get around this is we rely on sort of shortcuts, you know, emotional rules of thumb. And that's, that's really what a bias is. It's, it's sort of a stereotype or a, or a heuristic or a cognitive shortcut that says, well, uh, you know, I'm just going to rely on this rule of thumb uh, rather than thinking this all the way through. And so, um, you know, that has some benefits, you know, it, it, it has some benefits because it, it kind of allows us to move around without sort of having to ruminate on every single thing we think about. But the problem is the more stressed we get, right? So sort of the more taxed we get or the more emotion we get or the more stressed we get, the more reliant we become upon these biases. And sometimes we're not always working with a ton of good information and we become overly reliant on them. So I wanted to kind of set the stage a bit with just what a bias is because we have sort of an unequivocally negative take on them almost. And and really they facilitate a lot of like, getting around and i mean honestly a lot of them are good you know it's like if you you know uh, we we have a uh, an emotional shortcut for like if a wild animal's running at you you run the other way like you don't sit there you know <laughs> you don't sit there and go hmm like let me you know let me calculate every variable it's like oh crap run you know and and that's that's fine if if it's we're in physical danger but a lot of times they, they lead us astray, especially in situations where we have limited, um, you know, sort of limited experience and limited know-how. And for, for most people, finance certainly fits that bill. So that's a lot of the,
2: the research that I've read and i I make it a, a point to read more and more, uh, behavioral finance work from yourself, like a Danny Kahneman, um, you know, kind of what you just described. You know, in, in Danny Kahneman's world, is this System One and System Two, and so from from that perspective, even though it, it's this whole thought process of evolution, that the way that we used to be hunters and gatherers um, is completely different than what we are today, where we have you know desk jobs and and that that evolution hasn't necessarily come, you know, come full circle with how we deal with, you know, these biases. And I'm glad that you laid those out because most people probably don't know <laughs> what a bias even means. So from, from that perspective, what are some of the key biases that, that you've uncovered in your research that you focus on when it comes to making financial decisions?
1: Yeah, it's a it's a great question because um, the sort of exploration and explication of biases has almost become a bias unto itself. Like we've they've really started to proliferate. You know, we now have something like two hundred documented biases, and it's not very helpful for you as a financial professional to you know have a client walk through the door and say, okay, you know. Mr. And Mrs. Smith, here's a list of 200 ways that you can screw this up, right? Like it's, it's sort of an unwieldy, it's an unwieldy amount of information. Yeah. You're just to... overwhelmed. Yeah. Yeah. It is overwhelming. And so one of the things that I've done in in my books is I've looked at this universe of, of 200 something biases, and I've really boiled them down to what I'll call meta biases. So these, are, these are sort of meta constructs that, um, that that a lot of different biases load onto one sort of meta construct. So I've, I've come up with four. So here's, here's my four sort of meta biases. Uh, the first is ego, which is just our, our tendency to be overconfident broadly. Um, this takes us a couple of specific forms, right? We think we're better than other people is, is one shape that it takes. Um, so all the research shows that like, you know, there was, there's one great study that I cited in my book that shows a a survey of 700 men. um, 95% of them thought they were friendlier than average. 100% of them thought they were funnier than average. 94% of them thought they were more athletic than average. Like, you know, people just vastly, uh, vastly overinflate their, their, their own sort of self-worth and their skills. Uh, The second piece of this is that we think we're luckier than average, right? So, uh, we, we think luck lo- we're luckier than average. Like, so I think, you know, I can look at other people and say, okay, what's, you know, what's the likelihood that Paul's going to get divorced? Well, I would say, well, you know, national average says 50%. So Paul's got a 50, 50 shot of getting divorced. Like, well, what about you, Daniel? What are the odds that you're going to get divorced? Like me, never like, you know, same thing, you know, same thing with, um, Medical stuff, like same thing with cancer, or whatever, right? Like we, we dramatically, we, we think we're luckier than other people. Like we think other people are going to get cancer. We think other people are going to get divorced. We think other people are going to lose money in the stock market. And so, and then the third piece of this is um, that, we, uh, that we think we're better at predicting the future than we are. So we think we're we're luckier than we actually are. We think we're more sort of aware of of what the future is going to hold than we actually are, uh, and we think we're you know just better and more gifted than we actually are. So that's just one that's just one of the four. But I'll shut up and let you.
2: <laughs> no, no, you're you're good. You're on a roll. Like that's one thing. When 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 I'm you know having these conversations with people, I I let people go. I I try not to uh, you know interrupt uh, at, at all because I I think. You're you're the you're the expert. That's why I want to have you on and, and talk to talk to our audience and our and our families. So so if I cover those, so ego, luckier than than average, better at at predicting the future. Was there a fourth
1: one as well? So there's sorry there's there's four sort of meta biases. That's ego, emotion, attention, and conservatism. As I was talking all about ego which has three parts, which is, you know, an average, luckier than average, uh, smarter than average about the future. Okay.
2: So, so if we go from ego to um, emotional.
1: Yeah. So emotion is sort of just the broad tendency for us to, uh, you know, let, let our emotions influence the way that we assess risk and reward. So, you know, if, if you're having a great day and I say, Hey, Paul, tell me about your childhood and you're, you're having a great day. You go, Oh, we used to always go to Lake Michigan and we would get this cabin and we would eat ice cream and mom and dad loved me very much, you know, and and you, you, you recollect the past through that, that rosy lens, right? If you're having a terrible day and I say, Hey, Paul, you know, tell me about, your childhood, you go, well, you know, I got picked last that kickball and I got stuffed in lockers or, you know, whatever. Right. It's, it's this tendency of us to view the world from the emotional state that we're in. And people do this with, with markets too. If they're in a bad mood or if they're fearful about the markets, they see risk everywhere. Does that align to like
2: recency bias? Is that along those similar lines or?
1: Yeah. So, so what's interesting is Recency bias, I would actually put that in my, my last bucket there, if you will, because recency bias is our tendency to think that what has been in the recent past is, is all that will ever be, right? So you ask people in you know, March of 2009, what do you think the market's going to do for the next you know, year? And people go, oh, it's going to continue to crash, right? Well, it was off like a rocket ship broke from there, of course, because it, it had been crashing. And it mean reverted. You ask people now, like, what's the market going to do for the next year? And surveys have shown that people think the market's going to get about fifteen percent a year for the next ten years. I mean, nobody knows the future, but I, I'm going to go ahead and say that that's unlikely. You know, just kind of given given the run that we've had. So yeah, I'm rec- not planning
2: on it either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: So you know, recency bias is just the, this sort of conservative, if you will, tendency of people to think that what I see now is what will ever be. And again, this, this bias serves us well, right? Like if I meet and go, Oh, I met Paul, like I met Paul and like, he was, uh, he was amiable and and smart and kind, you know, I, I'm not when I, when I meet you again, right. Or when I meet you for a third time, I'm not going to go, Oh gee, I wonder what Paul's like. I wonder if Paul's going to be a total dummy and a jerk now, right? Like we, We think that what we know today is what will always be, and that serves us well uh, with relationships. That serves us well in a lot of places, but it serves us poorly in the markets because we tend to think that markets will continue their their current trajectory when, in fact, markets tend to do, uh, at least over the medium term, markets tend to do the opposite of what they've done most recently.
2: Okay so so far we've covered ego emotion
1: the third one so attention is the third one this is our um this is our tendency to confuse what we can recall with what is likely so you know if i we won't we won't do this on your podcast right but <laughs> if if i ask you if I ask you to, you know, name all the words you could think of with the lead that that start with the letter K, you know, and say, okay, you know, kangaroo, kite, whatever, you're kind of going through your list. And then I say, okay, Paul, give me all the words you can um, think of in which K is the third letter. Right. And so you make a list and you're like awkward, whatever, you know, your list is. And so if, if you do this to folks, the list of words that begin with K is, is usually dramatically longer than the list of, of words in which K is the, the third letter. But in fact, there are three times as many words in which K is the third letter as there are words that start with K. And it's just sort of a function of our poor retrieval system that we think about the world that way. So what's a more practical example of this for markets, right? You ask people to think about the worst year of their investing life, and they'll be like, oh, yeah, Absolutely. Corona crisis, you know, tech bubble, 2008, 2009, like it's super burned into our memories. And you say, oh, you know, tell me about a really good year you had. And it's basically all the other years between now and then, but our memory is just not as vivid for those things. And so it's a, it's a, it's a retrieval problem, right? Attention right? Attention is this retrieval problem where we confuse what's easy to recall with what's likely. And if you think about like other risks in life, you know, you ask people, you know, how likely you are to die of a shark attack. And it's like, oh, you know, that's, that's a real threat, you know, and you ask people, like, how likely are you to die of something boring, like diabetes? And they're like, eh, probably not. I mean, diabetes kills, you know, 300 million percent more people than shark attacks every year it's just harder to it's harder to recall so attention is just this bias where what we can easily generate in our minds is is perceived as being more likely as what uh, as it actually is because we're easy we're we're better at generating sort of doomsday scenarios
2: i've seen so many infographs where your, your, it's got your chances of being eaten by a shark versus, uh, or dying from a shark attack versus
1: dying from a mosquito. (laughs) Oh yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a perfect example. Like I lived in Hawaii, like right, right after I got married. So now, you know, 15 years ago now, right after, right after we got married, we moved to Hawaii for a summer internship I had. And, uh, the first thing we did there was we uh, we turned we we got there, we were exhausted, we turned on our tiny 12 inch TV and we had like three channels, one of them was Discovery Channel, so we watched Shark Week, and it's like the, the, <laughs> you know it's like the most dangerous places for shark attacks, and three of them were in Hawaii, so we lived in Hawaii for this whole summer, and I never went in the water because I was so scared of sharks, you know one in one in three hundred million chance basically and then that whole time, it's like I did a million other things. All right, like I took a shower every day. Like you're much more likely to slip and fall and die in the shower. You know, I drove everywhere. That's super dangerous. I eat Taco Bell. That's the most dangerous thing of all. You know, so we don't we don't have a very natural gauge for how risky behaviors. It's
2: funny you mentioned those because I remember reading one of your books, and I think you you put some of those uh, those uh, stories in in uh, in the behavioral. Uh, investor book, I'm I'm sure of it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: and we'll I'll make sure that uh, Daniel has rate uh, written two great books, and I'll make sure that I I put the links in um, the show notes for those as well. Um, so we've covered ego, emotion, attention, and then
1: what's the fourth? So the fourth is conservatism. Okay. Um, This is our tendency. uh, You know, we talked about recency bias as sort of a peripheral example of this. I think at its core, um, conservatism is about our preference for loss over gain, right? So we, we know that we're about two and a half times as upset about a loss as we are happy about a comparably sized gain. You know, I know you as an advisor probably get more more calls when when folks' portfolios are down twenty percent than you do, you know, fruit baskets when they're up twenty percent, and that's just because, you know, we we have an asymmetrical preference for for risk and reward, and, and it also has things to do with things like status quo bias, like we don't like change. Uh, it has to do with things like um, home bias. We see that where someone lives in the country has a lot to do with how they invest. So. People who live in sort of the New York, in the Northeast are, are tend to be overweight financials. People who live in the Midwest are often uh, overweight agriculture and auto stocks. You know, people who live in Atlanta, like I do, are overweight, you know, UPS and Aflac and Coke and like all sort of the local, the local businesses. So people are just sort of, come they're comfortable with what they know uh, and they're comfortable with what's around them. And they're not very comfortable with change. So that's all sort of the, the conservatism bias.
2: That's one of the, uh, <laughs> last year was obviously really interesting with, with COVID is that during the, the, the market meltdown um, in March, basically the month of March, um, I work with a little over 50 families now, and I didn't get one single call from a panicked family uh, about the market. Which, on one hand, I thought was great because it means I've done my job and trying to educate people on the ups and downs of the market, and people just realized what was going on. But you want to know the ironic thing, <laughs> Daniel, is that when GameStop went crazy, <laughs> mm-hmm. I got more calls. I probably got about a half a dozen calls about GameStop going crazy than, than I did anything else in my career, you know, COVID. Tech crash, you know, great financial crisis, but GameStop and that that whole frenzy, and it continues to go on. I got more calls about that. I'm like, what's like? Everyone wanted to know what's going on with that. Should we be investing in this? I'm like, no. This is this is not a part of your plan. <laughs> there's there's no uh, way that I would invest in something like this because if you look at the the fundamentals of GameStop, and we won't go into the details of it. I mean, it's it's not a great company. Um, it's just Momentum has taken over, and people just get caught up in that that frenzy. And to your point, just like when the markets are ripping higher, it's like it's going to last forever until it doesn't, and then it's like, oh, well, what happened?
1: Yeah, it's the the GameStop thing. Uh, that I, I didn't sleep a wink. I think that whole week that the GameStop thing was going on, I was just up all night looking at Reddit message boards. It was such a um, It was for for a guy who studies market psychology. That was like my Super Bowl. I mean, that was just the weirdest. (laughs) That was the weirdest, craziest week. And it look it's still elevated. I mean, I think it started the year at like whatever fifteen or twenty, and it's pushing two hundred. Yeah, still, um, which is uh, sort of unbelievable to me.
2: Yeah, I can't get my arms around that, nor do I really want to. But it's been interesting uh, to to follow along with it. So one of the things I'm interested in is, and, and I don't know if you have an answer to this, but so we've talked about the, the biases, we've talked about um, investor psychology, but how, does, how has the last year of being in this global pandemic of COVID affected yes. investor psychology? Is it, it, are people more attuned to it, less attuned to it, do you think?
1: Yeah, well, it's a, it's a great question. So uh, there's, a I think, a multi part answer to it. So one of the things we know, you know, I talked early on about how stress um, increases our reliance on bias. And so if you look at the mental health of the, of, of the country and even the world, you know, here in Atlanta, where I live, calls to suicide hotlines have been up 450% over the last year. And, you know, the UK measured the incidence of anxiety and depression in its citizens. And and they found that it that in England, uh, it was up 400%. I mean, it's just, there's no, there's never been anything like this in the in the last 100 years in terms of the, the negative impact on people's mental health. And when you look at, you know, when you when you look at the the pillars of good mental health the foremost among them is social connectedness you know it's it's good relationships and strong relationships and so when you know when when it becomes so difficult and this is not me being critical of of the lockdowns or the or the sort of the forced isolation because i think a lot of it was necessary for medical reasons but when but when we are so disconnected from each other um it's terrible. Like I mean, it's terrible for our psychology, and I think you've you've seen that reflected in markets. I mean, markets basically in the in the span of one year went from nineteen twenty nine to nineteen ninety nine. I mean, we had the fastest we had the fastest bear market ever when people were you know so upset, and then we had the fastest bull market ever. And now, I mean, valuations are very stretched almost anywhere you look and even across the board. Like if you look at art, I'm a big baseball card collector, like, right. So baseball, like collectibles are through the roof, arts through the roof, stocks are through the roof, real estate. And so, you know, you've had a lot of people who are at home feeling bored, feeling emotional, and frankly, whose lives had been de-risked you know, whose lives had been made, we were all kind of living in a bubble and and sort of still are to some extent. I think humankind has a propensity to take some risk and you're seeing that risk taking emerge like gambling's way up, you know, sort of speculative behavior in the stock market. So yeah, like absolutely, there's been a big impact. You know, people are bored, people are stressed out uh, and their lives have been de-risked. You know, final point here, a lot of what you saw with GameStop was, was to me, people wanting to be a part of a collective. Like we're all at home. We're also lonely and all the GameStop stuff was, was positioned as like a social movement, you know? And it was like, Hey, we're going to stick it, you know, we're going to stick it to wall street. We're going to stick it to the bankers. Here we go, like stack hands and let's go get this money. And, and, you know, the, the promise of a getting rich, and and B doing it in a way with your you know with your internet buddies that that presses every button in in human psychology right like you're gonna what like I'm gonna get I'm gonna get rich and I'm gonna stick it to Wall Street and I'm gonna do it with my new buddies like that's catnip for investors <laughs> especially investors who are so lonely and so isolated so yeah I think there has been a, a huge huge impact.
2: Do you think that as things get back to normal? Those types of things. This is really interesting because I had not thought about this this way. But if we get back to whatever the new normalcy is, however long that takes, hopefully sometime this year yet, and people are are out and about more more socially active, do those things that they were involved with before, like increased gambling, increased you know card collection, like. We won't even get into NFTs. I keep that's one question I keep getting <laughs> asked about. What's this NFT? But does as we get back to normal and we take risk, d- does risk come off the table? And then is there a potential that you know all these inflated assets
1: start coming down in price? Well, I mean, I here there's a couple of things I'd say. So first of all, there's always been investment chat rooms and message boards and groups. So some of this is like tail as old as time. Like that's not going anywhere. People will always be interested in that, but will it have the same sort of emotional valence? Will it have the same sort of thrust and be such a big movement? I don't think so. Like, I think, I think that as the world normalizes, people won't be looking for social connectedness Uh, in a message board trying to run up a stock with their buddies they'll be at a bar trying to meet people like i mean you know like doing what doing what we always used to do you know they'll be at a at a club or a bar out with friends or you know whatever um and so i think you'll see some of that debate like there's if if you talk about nfts and i know this is pandora's box like NFTs the value of NFTs in aggregate has fallen 50% in the last two weeks or something like i mean there's no there's no doubt to me that certain parts of the of the investment and trading world are massively massively bubbly right now like if you if you look at you know if you look at this stuff some of it is so out of control like it's just unsustainable so yes like i i do think things will normalize uh, but i don 't want to cry wolf here either there's parts of the there's parts of the market that are attractively priced like international emerging markets value some small cap value all that stuff's like very much consistent with historical norms but will you know will people be paying seventy million dollars for a jpeg piece of art like i don't i don 't think so so
2: one of one of the topics i want to come uh, come back to is most of the time, when I'm meeting with you know husband-wife or partner spouses, uh, there's a difference between men and women when it comes to these uh, you know investing and financial behavior um, right off the get-go. But then you know, everybody has a different look or or feeling of of saving versus investing versus spending. Have have you done much work around the dynamics between you know relationships um, when it comes to you know and financial psychology and, and the differences between um, you know people within these relationships?
1: So, talking about differences within within a couple or a partnership in terms of financial differences. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so I actually created something. I won't spoil it all since well, it's not rolled out yet. But um, I did some research uh, around what people fight about when they fight about money. Basically, <laughs> so we know that you know we know that disagreements about money are are at least ostensibly the number one cause of divorce in, in North America. And so I partnered with uh, uh, a former client of mine in Canada to create. Um, to, to create a survey of basically what, what do people fight about when they fight about money? And, and we created sort of a personality profile for couples that is sort of going to be the Myers-Briggs of financial values. And it's going to show you know, the members, the, the partners like, okay, you think this about money, you think about this. So one example, this was the thing that we found that people fought about the most is, is money best used to seize the day or protect tomorrow? Right. Is money best used for like to to enjoy the moment or to protect the future? Now, what you'll notice about this is that both things are important, right? Like that was the case with all of things. Both things are important and and both things have taken to extreme are are cancerous and, and bad for your relationship and just bad for your money. So what we're doing here is we're we're trying to measure couples' values around money. And we're trying to help them understand that uh, it's not good or bad. It's about finding balance, right? Like people, nobody wants to, you know, nobody wants to eat ramen every day for lunch and and hoard every penny they have and, you know, sort of die with the biggest bank account and not have lived a life. And yet we know that people who who, who YOLO every penny away uh, in pursuit of like living every day like it's their last aren't going to be ready for the future. So it's, it's a big way that financial advisors can do good in the world, I think, is by helping couples understand their money types and uh, helping them navigate them in a, in a fruitful way.
2: That, that, is, that is really fascinating because that's one area where I'm always cognizant of when I, when I sit down with um, you know, a new family and, and how they interact with each other and what their thoughts are on money. I like what, one of the common disagreements specifically is when there's kids involved is, okay, well, how do we fund college? Cause typically most of the time I found that parents are on opposite ends of the the spectrum on this, because you potentially had one parent that had to pay their way through and Mm -hmm. potentially another parent that, you know, their parents paid the full bill. So one's thinking, well, I didn't I had to pay, then you know, I want my my kids to pay. And the other parents like, no, I didn't have to pay. I don't want my kids to endure this debt and and whatnot. And so it's finding, I think you hit the nail on the head, finding common balance. It's not right or wrong. It's figuring out at the end of the day what how we can bridge that gap and make, you know, the plan
1: work and make our money work for the things that we want to do. Yeah. You know, it's great when you, the reason I like the, the Myers-Briggs analogy is because you think about something from like a Myers-Briggs type personality test. So extroversion versus introversion, it's not like there's a right answer. A- and yet people get so, people get so wound up in their personal experience that sometimes when an extrovert meets an introvert, they go, you know, what's, what's her problem? Why is she snobby? Like, why is she aloof? And the introverts going, like, why is this person all up in my space? And like, why are they talking over me? But when they understand that those are just preferences, right, that, that are partially shaped by who they are, partially shaped by their upbringing, they can go, oh, okay, she's not aloof. She's just, you know, she's just a little shy and retiring or whatever. And they can go, oh, well, they're not, you know, uh, they're not so in your face. They're just, this is how they, they communicate. And so once we understand and articulate those preferences, we don't have to be controlled by them. And so we're all, you know, we're all just doing the best. We're all just doing the best we can. And we all kind of grow up with money scripts. And, and, you know, like you said, my wife and I have this, this conversation all the time. Like my parents paid for all eight years of my college. You know, I got a PhD and came out with no debt and her parents made her work for it. And so Everybody, you know, a, a fish doesn't know it's wet. We're all products of our financial environment, right? And then we come out and we just go, oh, this is the way the world works. And, and it takes really an articulation and discussion around those things as not being good or bad, but just being, you know, different choices along life's path. It, once, you, once you highlight those and articulate them, you can arrive at a solid middle ground. So... I know I only have
2: you for a finite period of time. So there's a a couple of questions I still want to get to. And I think one of them kind of encompasses a lot of what we've talked about so far and that we've talked about these biases and we, we, we've talked about not overwhelming people. It's not like I'm going to sit down with, with a, with a new family and, and list all these biases out or talk to them about, you know, recency bias or, you know, uh, you know, any, any of the biases that that we've talked about because you don't want to overwhelm them. Like it's what I have found in, 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 my, my firm and doing this for a long time. And you probably have heard it's from other advisors is that it's hard enough for people to take the very first step to reach out to work with an advisor, especially when they've never worked with anybody before. I mean, there's, there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of you talk about emotions. There's a lot of emotions, you know, going into that. Um, so, from From that perspective, how do people gain some sense and awareness around maybe these biases they have and how it could help them
1: so here's this is the this is kind of the bad news you mentioned Daniel Kahneman right so daniel kahneman nobel prize winning psychologist who's the father of much of this work that I've talked about today um, when when Daniel Kahneman is asked, you know, in in interviews, uh, you know, are you are you a more rational actor as a result of having studied this your whole life? He would say no, no, right? And so the thing the thing that we know is that like you know you know it's like diet and exercise, right? When I'm uh, stressed out at the end of a at the end of a long business trip and Like I'm, I'm tired and I miss my family and I'm walking, dragging my heavy bag through the airport. And I, you know, go eat a whatever, go eat a donut or something, right. Go eat the Cinnabon that smells so good in (laughs) terminal D. Um, When you, when you go do this, if someone were to interview me and go, Hey, was this a, was this a, 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 a nutritional choice that's consistent with your nutritional and fitness goals? I would be like, no, but like lay off because like, I know it's not right, but it's just, it felt right at the time. So, knowing and doing are very different things in, in psychology. So, there's, there's really three things that we need, Paul, to, to get people to do the right thing. It's, it's three E's. So, the first is education, right? The first is knowing that that Cinnabon is not good for you. And, like, you know, I think many of us have ticked that box, but it's the work of a good advisor to, to help educate his or her clients so that they're better informed. So that's sort of the foundational level. The second piece is the environment, right? So the second piece is the environment, which in the case of the, the investor is, is their portfolio. You know, they need a portfolio that is volatility managed enough that they're not going to freak out at the, you know, at the first sign of, of a downturn. And so if you think about your clients, right, your clients, you, you had clearly done a good job of of educating them, right, about the sort of the reality as a market volatility. You had put them in the right environment. You had them in good portfolios that were keeping them invested throughout the corona crisis. The third one, though, is encouragement. And so that's where your clients kind of encounter the GameStop thing. They go, okay, what is this? Like Paul prepared us. Paul prepared us for normal market volatility. Paul did not prepare us for a, a band of redditors to send some stock to the moon. So like they call you and say, "Hey man, should we should we invest in this?" and you explain to them why they shouldn't. So that's the three things we need. We need this right base of education, we need the right water to swim in, which is the right environment or the right portfolio. But even when we have those things, there's going to be moments where we encounter something weird in the markets. There's going to be moments where we want to do the wrong thing, and that's where an advisor comes in with that encouragement and says, "Hey now, Um, Nope, you know, or 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 yes, right? That's where they come in with that encouragement. So that's what it takes to change behavior. Got to have the right education, the right environment, and and the right encouragement.
2: That was outstanding. (laughs) That was that was outstanding. So I know that you have a family of your own and and kids. I forget how old your kids are. Um, But my closing question for all my guests is. What is the best thing about being a
1: parent? Oh, I mean, being a parent has has revolutionized, you know, my family. So my family is actually gone today. They're off um, visiting. They're they're visiting my parents in in North Alabama, uh, where I where I grew up, and it's the first time I've been apart from them in whatever fourteen months we've, you know, we've homeschooled our kids throughout the whole coronavirus throughout the whole pandemic. So uh, I time I have with my wife and three kids in, in 14 months, and, you know, they leave me this sweet note about how they'll miss me. And, you know, the thing to me, the best part about having kids um, is seeing the world through new eyes. You know, it's, it's uh, appreciating the beauty of nature in a way that, that only a kid can notice. It's falling back in love with baseball by, you know, by, by teaching my son about it. It's, it's falling in love with, you know, the, the world by taking my daughter to Paris. Like seeing, seeing the world through new eyes, I think is the, the best thing about being a parent. A close second is the, the ubiquity of chocolate milk. Like we always have chocolate milk in our house. I couldn't justify that if it was just, me. <laughs> we always have chocolate milk. And that's really nice to be like, this is for the kids.
2: Well, Daniel, I think that's an excellent way to, to kind of wrap up our conversation. Um, I can't thank you enough for being on the emotional balance sheet podcast. I know you're uh, a busy gentleman with, a. Uh, with a lot of uh, career things going on right now, which we didn't get into, but we'll, we'll save that for our next
1: conversation. Yeah, yeah, man. Thanks for having me. This is fun.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Please visit tamacapital.com to subscribe to this podcast or to connect with certified financial planner and registered investment advisor, Paul Fenner of Tama Capital. And please join us again next time on the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast.